I am excited to introduce our guest for today, friend of the show as well. No longer a friend of mine based on our Twitter interactions last night. However, Matthew Pines, how are you doing, sir? Hey, man. How's it going? Wonderful, man. I will let you introduce yourself because there are so many things that you've done that are incredible. I don't know which one's your favorite right now. So you can pick which one of your sort of resume checklist is your favorite that you want people to know about. I'm a dad. Let's go right for the, right for the cockles of your heart, right? You Aww. know, just got to rack that one up. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a consultant. I spent about 10 years doing kind of different analysis for the government on different ways bad things can happen, both in kind of emerging technology and sort of geopolitical situations and natural disasters, terrorism, et cetera. And then switched about a few months ago to join the private sector at a firm called the, the, the Credit Stamos Group, really delivering services for multinationals on the intersection of geopolitics and cybersecurity. So it's been an interesting kind of change of pace, more of like a startup mode. I'm also affiliated with the Bitcoin Policy Institute as a national security fellow there, help support the efforts to bring really informed, kind of more rigorous objective analysis on Bitcoin and national security to policymakers, the larger kind of public policy conversation. So that's kind of the long and short of it. Yeah, the Bitcoin is kind of just like a side hobby, like an interest area, but yeah, focus on kind of geopolitics, cybersecurity, macro, that sort of stuff. Love it. Well, let's let's dive in because honestly, perfect segue to the question I wanted to start things off. And it seems Wait, so sorry, Hugh, I, I gotta interrupt. I, I gotta dive into the first thing that Matt said. You said that you are a father, is that correct? Yeah, apparently. Yes. Yes. The, well I've got two I've got two little things here that, that have half of my genetic code that, that yes, I have those obligations too. And and how old are they, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, five and a half and two and a half. Two girls, uh, yeah. So I am, I am, I am, I'm outnumbered in the, in the house. Three to amazing. One. Okay, so you are incredibly prolific on Twitter, and as I've told you before, I can pay you no higher compliment than I have you set on like always notify, and you the, this like all joking aside, you you um, you just put out such consistent like high signal information. I imagine you in some sort of like dark control room. There's screens everywhere. There's like parchment inexplicably. There's pa there's paper everywhere. There's some vellum. You've got like a quill pen and then also like some, you know, like a, a ballpoint pen and you're using both hands simultaneously because in my fantasy you're ambidextrous. And I guess my, my question for you is, and I know I asked you something similar last time, but how do you consume as much information as you do, as rapidly as you do, that's question one. And then I have a follow-up question once you answer that. Well, I guess the first thing is, is curating how you get your information so that you don't spend as much time filtering out noise, right? So if you're getting high quality information, if I find people that you think are like me in terms of generating high signal data feeds, which is sort of how I view Twitter to a certain extent, is like there's kind of the, you know, the fun side, but then the other side of it's basically just like, like a data feed, right? And you gotta curate the data feed over time to make sure that you're getting kind of high signal input. So I've done that like over the past like year and a half. So just to kind of curate like what information I'm getting from different sources. And then it's, it's more just kind of, you know, taking that in, yeah, setting aside time to read. Right. So I try to read a book every week roughly, which is, you know, not like impossible task. I think people can, can do that. So yeah, I mean, just kind of paying attention to what, you know, learning like the heuristic over time about what's kind of just like the headlines. Like I don't actually look at like New York times or CNN really like almost at all, unless there's like a particular news event that merits attention. Like those are not, from my perspective, that, that high quality 
kind of analytical data feeds. It's giving you like updates on things that are happening, but that's not necessarily helping you construct kind of an analytical or, or explanatory narrative. And for that, you really need to seek out folks that are like the niche experts in their respective domains. And so that's why I try to find in, in all sorts of different corners of, 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 of the Twitter space. So like who are the people that are like, that know their territory in and out. And then I just basically get to gain from, you know, their years and years of sort of hard won expertise. And I just learned how to kind of integrate and maybe parrot what they say. So yeah, that is that's kind of the general approach. Got it. And then my second question is, as you have these two young humans that are slowly turning into fully functional humans and learning how to kind of process the world around them through the interactions with you and, uh, and, and your significant other, how do you... Like, what do you do or how do you think about your children in relation to processing information? Like, are, do you like read with them? Do you ask them critical thinking questions? How do you, how are you grooming them into being the, as effective as you are in the world around them? Well, the five-year-old, I think, should stay off Twitter for a while. So <laughs> I don't think I'm giving her Fair uh, point. Fair point. No, I mean, honestly, I just think the most important thing, at least I, I, I don't know if I learned it. It's just, I was always curious, right? Like if you don't actually have like a motivation to seek out information, then it doesn't really matter anything else, right? Like you have to be curious about new and different things. And I don't know, like that's just like, I've always been kind of a weird person when it comes to like learning different things like physics or philosophy, that's kind of undergraduate. So I was always attracted to like really novel, somewhat sort of frontiersy sorts of domains of human knowledge and just like acquiring information as like a matter of psychological compulsion, one might say. So yeah, I hope she doesn't have that compulsion. Uh, <laughs> I hope she just has like innate, innate curiosity about the world and, you know, learns different methods to, you know, acquire the things that she's interested in and in, in understanding. But yeah, that's really about just unstructured orientation to a, a wide array of potentially interesting things. And then kind of an iterative process of exploration and kind of testing about what you actually find interesting. And then refining and categorizing and then applying yourself. So I don't know, that's kind of basic like process of learning. But yeah, if you don't actually care, then it's not gonna matter, right? But that is a problem, right? You can care, like, you can be obsessive about lots of things and just like obsessively collate and collect like a, like an information quarter. And then you're just, you know, to what end, right? You're just, you know, someone who knows lots of facts and can sort of spout off random things and sound smart, but it's like, what's the point, right? Why do you know all that stuff unless it has any sort of relevance to your decision-making or policy or, you know, informing some analysis of a particular problem. So yeah, it's, that's the double-edged sword, right? You can spend, you know, months admiring a problem and going down lots of different rabbit holes and, you know, thinking you understand it, but if, you know, what's the purpose of that, right? It's kind of, that's always been a thing. It's just how do you make it goal, goal oriented, or at least construct a goal that you can, you know, think about that information being relevant to. So yeah, with her, it's just play, you know, it, the first, the first order of business, I think for everyone is just learning how to explore different ideas and not to think about certain aspects of knowledge or, or sort of human affairs as being sort of off limits, right? Like, I think that's, as you can probably tell from my Twitter feed, there's lots of things that I tweet about that are sort of, you know, considered kind of, well, I mean, Bitcoin in like a general professional context would be considered kind of fringy stuff. I tweet about like UAPs or sort of, random stuff in science it's like okay this is just stuff i think is, is inherently interesting and you know if you if you uh, if you get like the icky feeling from a particular piece of knowledge you know kind of question why you have that and then yeah i love that yeah i fucking love that i was having that conversation last night with my buddy where i literally said if 
if I have an emotional reaction, whether it's like strongly positive or more specifically, like when I'm like, no, I can't, like that, what that person's saying is so wrong, it makes me angry. There's clearly something there that I have to spend time to explore. So I, I've always said I loved and admire your perspective, and I, I love hearing this. P, keep going. We'll hold off on my questions. No, no. I mean, I, I've made a note here that the most important thing when raising children is to instill a psychological compulsion in them to absorb all the information around them. That's what I took away from that comment. Is that you know, you're, you're just training, you know, a a budding convolutional neural net, you know, inside inside an expanding skull. And it's, you know, how do you make sure the training data is properly calibrated to optimize that neural net? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the answer. I was this, is why, this is why my mom, this is why, this is why the, you know, their mom is, is like a good balancer because clearly if I was the sole father, it would be not a good outcome. <laughs> <laughs> They'd just be these like unfortunate children with like hydrocephaly because their brains were so big <laughs> and they'd just be sort of like, you know, not able to function in the real world. Got it. Okay. All right. So thank you for entertaining my, my line of questioning. Thank you. Let's dive into the real meat of this conversation. Can I, I can hijack this now. I'm going to yeah, ask. Yeah, you got your, you got to like flex your fingers, crack your knuckles, get ready. And I'll interrupt you again within the next five minutes and we'll derail it again. Cool, 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 cool. I got to rewarm up. You guys don't really see my warm up while, while sure. the dance goes on, but Matt, I'm going to ask you what is largely considered now the most difficult question in public policy. Please help your friends in the public sector. Give them the answer that everyone is dying to hear to the following question. What is your definition of a recession? Oh, come on. My definition of recession will serve whether my paycheck is going up or down, right? But I guess my definition of the economic recession, really, you know, it's it's an operation to that definition. is Whatever that the majority of economic participants would react to as a constellation of economic data that would require them to pull back on their future investment consumption, et cetera. The NDER defines that as like two consecutive quarters of negative GDP contraction, as well as like other sort of technical measures they add on to that. I don't know. It's a very uninteresting question to me. I don't actually see how it's very, that, that, that useful, but yeah, we're probably, you know, close to recession, if not in one, when they retroactively declare it, you know, look at various sort of leading indicators, that seems to be a very non-controversial thing. So I accept the fact that you think that that's a terrible question. Uh, I stand by asking you that question, however. I loved your response of, well, my it's based on my paycheck. And I've been long saying it's, so long as I am employed, we're not in a recession. But should I enter unemployment, we are in a recession. Those are the rules That's, of the game. I don't make that. That is the terrible definition of recession. All right, then what's your definition? Well, if, you're, if the, the purchasing power of your paycheck is going up, then you're not. And if it is, you're going down, right? So have no. we just been in like a 70, 80 year recession in this country? Maybe. Yeah, you could say we've been in, you know, like blank recession. You could say we've been like, whether it's an activity recession, whether it's in an employment, like a labor force participation recession, right? Like recession, this is the grammatical term, just refers to, you know, the contraction of some quantity, right? Whether that quantity is economically meaningful to you or whether it's an aggregate which is like itself not measurable, right? Like GDP is this like artificial construction, right? It's sort of economic fiction, right? It's you know, things that we look at in the world, we measure those things and we say that those sets of things mean this higher level concept. And so we imbue that higher level concept with some degree of reality when it's just an economic fiction, right? We constructed these kind of quantities, but they don't, you know, they only mean as much as we interpret them. You know, like what you observe in your daily reality is like how many people actually have jobs, what's their income, what does that income get them in terms of like real energy and goods and services that they would desire, those sorts of things. I don't know. We can go back to, you know, basics of economics, but that's probably not a very interesting conversation. 
Fair. So what then is sort of taking up a lot of your time, effort, and energy domestically on the public policy side right now? I know you do a ton of work with BPI as well. We've seen a lot of regulatory efforts. What What's keeping you up at night other than the girls? Well, there's been some interesting, you know, you know, public policy works slowly, right? And so it's a matter of kind of shaping kind of a longer term environment. We're not engaged in like acute kind of lobbying efforts or anything like that. So it's about looking ahead to where the government and the specifically kind of the, the executive order that President Biden signed several months ago and kind of the resulting request for comment that different government agencies have put out sort of in different areas of their kind of regulatory purview. And so BPI has responded to to some of those in areas that we think we have something, you know, useful to 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 provide. So on like the climate and, and energy stuff, responding. So Troy Cross and Marco Pias kind of led the development of this response to the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the EPA on really trying to, you know, frame an accurate analysis of what Bitcoin mining really means to the grid and energy more generally, you know, try to rebut some of the, the, the FUD out there on kind of its consumption externalities, but also kind of create a more balanced analysis about what we do and don't know exactly about the, the future trends with, with regards to Bitcoin mining and, and US energy grid. So that's been an effort that was, that was occupying a, a, a number of us over the past several months, a similar sort of response to comment for the Department of Treasury kind of broader kind of how they think about digital assets, how they should think about digital assets and kind of just giving them some, you know, informed analysis about different policy issues that they should be aware of the implications, you know, potential future regulation on Bitcoin specifically. So yeah, that's been kind of the work of BPI and also just doing some, you know, kind of ad hoc advocacy in terms of like talking with people if they have questions and, and, you know, helping to understand, you know, if they have questions about sanctions or that sort of stuff to kind of, you know, respond to that. Obviously the tornado cash thing is probably more relevant to Ethereum, but you know, I think raises the the specter of potential future action similar to that about kind of sanctioning addresses and compelling miners to to build a block or not with the with a sanctioned address. So there's things like that, like, you know, kind of the typical kind of policy conversation around Bitcoin. And then, you know, there's there's the action on, on the hill with the with the Gillibrand legislation and some of the interesting kind of conversation that has precipitated now that this is a formal piece of legislation. Lots of discussion can happen around, you know, kind of the be in the weeds, technical plumbing and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, I'm not super involved in that side of things. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I don't draft laws. <laughs> I don't really know the ins and outs of subpart B to the, you know, subparagraph A clause sorts of things. But yeah, I'm sort of, you know, keeping, keeping tabs on everything. Okay. Hang on. I got to cross out a few questions off of this list, but just, I think more high level. Do you is there any movement on this Lummis Gillibrand bill? I know that it was sort of the last I had heard was it's going to be sort of pushed until next year, so we're not going to see this vote. Is there anything different other than that last piece of news we saw? Yeah, I don't have any update. I mean, I think a lot of it's 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 all politics. It's all what happens with midterms and you know shakeups in like the leadership of different committees and yeah, and then like the legislative calendar is. Is, I'm sure this is probably not the priority for whichever party takes 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 leadership. This wouldn't be like the top of the list of things that would get put, you know, through the the. So yeah, I mean, next year probably be even optimistic. I don't know whether it gets bundled into like a larger kind of omnibus package or something like that. I think there's still a lot of time that they've worked through all the all the ins and outs there. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be holding my breath, you know, for something like that to get passed anytime soon. Fair, fair. I want to talk energy with you for a sec because we talked about it a little bit earlier today, we're seeing Texas really showcase the 
use case for why Bitcoin miners are so instrumental in helping energy grids and infrastructures really expand and grow. We've also seen over the course of this year, other states taking drastic opposing positions like the state of New York. We have truly the most obnoxious politician against Bitcoin, Elizabeth Warren, pushing forward bill after bill, trying to combat proof of work. I, I gave you a lot of things that we we can start at. I'm curious though, where or what is most exciting out of this space? What is the thing that you care more about? And is it one of these negative aspects like a tax by the state or a tax by politicians? Or is it sort of the positive showcases of Bitcoin that allow us to see like, hey, this works in the way Bitcoiners have been telling you this works? Interesting. So I think we're sort of reaching, we're trying to figure out what the equilibrium or at least the steady state in equilibrium, the steady state for Bitcoin mining in the United States is going to look like. There was sort of this, you know, massive kind of perturbation with the China kind of, you know, exfil. And then everyone came pouring in at the same time, there was this run up in price. And there was, you know, like all these new business models and people jumping into the market and getting financing. And so there's like a really kind of kind of extreme set of circumstances that had kind of like launched what you might sell as like, you know, the current incarnation of US Bitcoin mining. Um, and I think we're seeing that kind of reach some sort of, you know, it's got to, it's got to come back down from that kind of crazy period. So I'm interested in seeing like what shakes out of that as we enter into a period, you know, like, you know, there's not gonna be a whole lot of liquidity out there in the general financial market. So borrowing and, fun and financing <clears throat> environments going to be much more constrained unless we have some sort of crazy run up in the Bitcoin price It's unanticipated. You're going to be in this sort of somewhat kind of desultory kind of period. And so there it's like where, you know, Bitcoin mining as a business and as these industrial scale operations intersecting with different energy grids, with different purchasing power agreements, different business models behind the meter, off grid, et cetera, are really going to have to kind of prove themselves. And I'm really interested to see like what, what comes out the other end of that, right? Like you get a sort of healthy winnowing out of kind of the, the poorly run operations, the operations that haven't taken into account their like local context, the regulatory environment, their, you know, kind of you know, potential terror risks in different, in different sort of, sort of pricing markets. So that's what I'm really interested in just seeing like that as like a, it's really get to see like a novel industry kind of like get created <laughs> relatively short period of time, especially an industry as unique as Bitcoin, which is in a lot of different places, sort of by, by definition, it's sort of geographically agnostic. And so I think you're going to learn a lot. I think it's like a natural experiment about what sorts of business models work and which ones don't, right? You can pencil it out on the paper, but like, you know, <laughs> you have to prove, you have to do the proof of work. You have to actually like set up the operations, run them well, and see how well you can keep that profitable over, you know, even in a period where you can't necessarily get some, you know, uh, like debt financing. So that's what really, I'm really most interested in seeing, like, where is Bitcoin mining as an industry? How does it actually evolve in the United States in the next, like, 12 to 18 months? Because a lot of these other, like, subsidiary questions about the regulatory environment, you know, how, how, how easy would it be to potentially capture that sort of thing, you know, really fall down and, like, where does Bitcoin mining shake out geographically in the United States at what scale versus Texas, Georgia, Oklahoma? What are these different business models and how well can they, you know, sort of sustain themselves in kind of a quasi-bear market over, over time. So that's what I'm most, most interested in, in looking at. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. 
We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at bitmex.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. You know, I'd love to spend some time talking about that because like, I am a very active investor. I probably shouldn't admit this openly, but I still do buy and sell stocks and shitcoin. Not shitcoins, but stocks being the shitcoins. I've I've long felt you know the mining boom that we saw was because of cheap easy money and we're starting to see sort of the falling out of people taking advantage of cheap money and those kind of caught with their pants down are getting screwed over. What are I don't want you to give away all of your trade secrets, but like what are you know current business models that you like and where where are you expecting changes to be made in that industry? Oof. Well, it's a little bit, I'm, I, I'm not an active investor in Bitcoin miners as like a private equity. So I'm sure there's probably folks that would have like the cutting edge there. I say, I think one of the biggest discriminators is going to be how folks control their costs long-term because, you know, I, I guess it's like basic for any business, but like, what is like actively, like, how do they do that? And that's going to require some sophistication, not just on like the mining side, but on like the finances on the financing side and then the interaction with different grids and i think the folks that can get like behind the meter like longer term arrangements are going to be like really well positioned you know i think there's gonna be a lot of pressure in certain jurisdictions for folks that are um you know taking off the grid directly like there's gonna be a lot of like you know like those are gonna be like the, the front end of the political attack are the folks that are just like competing for the same watt hour with like a residential customer right even if even though we know this like not really the way it works but like that will be the more kind of politically kind of vulnerable sorts of operations, whereas the ones that can like credibly demonstrate, you know, they're actively, you know, supporting grid balancing or load balancing or frequency control, or they're doing some of the methane off, off you know, the like the methane offtake, or they're helping bootstrap some of these kind of stranded renewables, et cetera. I think that's like an interesting, if like, as long as that economically makes sense, right? Because there's some of those things that like look good, but you know, if those like, if those wind farms are, are themselves vulnerable because they have poor financing, and they're really intermittent and they shut down, well, then your operation is shut down. So yeah, there's, it's, it's very complicated. And that's the thing is like, it's extremely complicated business. It's probably one of the more complicated businesses out there. I don't think like, I have no special insight. If I knew I, I, I would have, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, a six running right now. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have that special insight. So I stay out of that. I stay out of that business, but I'm interested in just from a policy perspective about how it's going to, you know, play a potentially significant role in different parts of the energy market. And, you know, you know, there are, as we know, like positive externalities and negative externalities. And it's important to like be conscious of both of those and then to see how well the actual free market incentives combined with what local governments do, what state governments do, what the federal government does, like this is like a new industry. And so all these sort of things are being shaken out kind of as we go live. I want to play a little bit of a what if scenario and P 
chime in here with what you think happens in this scenario as well. But we've already seen China ban Bitcoin like 8,572 8, times. And yet somehow the Bitcoin network continues to operate. Bitcoin made a new all-time high after that happened. And so my question to both of you is, let's say somehow Elizabeth Warren like wins her crazy battle and proof of work is outlawed in the United States of America. Does Bitcoin care? Does it stop? Like what happens to these miners that are in, under US jurisdiction? Like where where do we go from there after Elizabeth Warren in this doomsday scenario wins out on her fight? I mean, I, I'm happy to jump in here. I, I think Matt will be able to give a much more quantitative answer here. But I guess what I would say is we have seen an unprecedented amount of selling pressure already on the Bitcoin price, right? We had, uh, you know, the, the 3AC blow up. We had the Celsius blow up. We had all this stuff happening. And the fact that we didn't go even lower based on that is very bullish and compelling to me. So just from like an NGU focused perspective, there's that. But just as we saw, I mean, I think it would absolutely affect the price in the short term. But the thing about Bitcoin is that the, the, the actual price of it is not, to me, the most compelling thing about it. And so just as when China tried to ban mining most recently, and we saw this migration of hash power outside of China, I think the same thing would happen here. There are very compelling reasons to mine Bitcoin in, in places that are willing to support it. And I think that would just continue to happen. It would be a setback, yes, but I don't think, there's no way that that would be like the end of Bitcoin, you know? And I don't think that's actually going to happen. I don't think we're going to ban proof of work. I think the Ethereum switch to, you know, POS is going to be such a disaster that there's going to be a lot of people that are like, oh my gosh, how could we possibly have foreseen this outcome? And then Bitcoiners are going to be like, are you fucking kidding me? And <laughs> then that's what's going to happen. Matt, what do you think? I mean, you can assume any scenario you want, right? It's like, I can imagine a scenario where solar flare wipes out the grid and it's like not good for Bitcoin, but it's like, is that relevant for anyone's decision-making? Right. So it's like, there's no, there's no, I think plausible scenario where like Elizabeth Warren herself, you know, takes executive power and like bans Bitcoin. Right. Like this is a, I don't know, like, <laughs> like, um, I, like you construct an infinite number of these sorts of negative scenarios. Right. So the question Absolutely. is where, where the probability distribution are they and are they relevant to like, you know, like how much credence do you put in them versus like, and you got to think it's like symmetrically, right? Like for every negative downside scenario, it, you know, is there equally likely you know, upside scenario? What would be the political conditions? Because we're really making a political assessment here. We're not making like an economic assessment. We're not making an assessment about what, like, like when the next block's going to hit. It's like entirely a political, you know, judgment, right? And, and you know, people have, you know, whatever. They may make the prediction markets, but I don't put much stock in anyone's ability to forecast kind of political evolution. So then it's like a matter of just like, what sorts of, what's the reasonable bad case scenario? What's the reasonable like best case scenario and kind of where we're going to more likely end up somewhere in the, in the middle. And I, yeah, I think like you're likely going to see, especially in the Biden administration, an increasing willingness to kind of push the limits of like the national security justification against Bitcoin and the climate kind of argument against, against Bitcoin. And like, there are, you know, there's not like a unified front. There's people, you know, in, in, lots of parts of the government that are neutral, negative, positive, and it's a complicated, messy kind of bureaucratic machine. And any particular instrument of power is like very much disconnected from every other instrument. And so you can get kind of somewhat 
somewhat disconnected, if not like downright kind of incoherent policymaking on different things. So to be like, you know, I, I think what we should more likely expect is like downside scenario would be like tornado cash style sorts of OFAC things that just become much more aggressive on like Bitcoin miners. So like just like try to like incrementally boil the frog on Bitcoin miners. So like try to get them to sort of come into more of like a walled garden, so to speak, right? Because it's not necessarily hitting the application layer. It's hitting, I mean, and not hitting the protocol. They're trying to hit like the application layer and like the corporate layer, right? Like there's layers to Bitcoin beyond just like the social consensus layer, Bitcoin layer. There's the political, economic, social layer of corporations, like state and local regulatory regimes and, and sort of national kind of enforcement. And so... Yeah, I think it's an interesting test case to see how far they think they can push, you know, things like the OFAC power, right? Which is a really unique power, right? It's 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 technically, you know, the, like the tornado cash justification came from the National Emergencies Act, and through like a separate international economic, it's like IEPA, I think what the full acronym is, but like that basically allows them to sanction foreign property and entities associated with foreign property. And tornado cash, I think, is going to be some litigation about exactly to what extent, you know. The smart contracts can be considered like a person or a property or an entity. And yeah, so there's, I think there's gonna be some interesting, like that would be where I'd be looking would be like more in the, like the technocratic wield the sanctions power, and then really use the kind of, you know, kind of scare compliance into companies, not necessarily require it, right. But basically, you know, kind of leave the ambiguity open. And then, you know, as we saw with the Ethereum stuff, like self self-censorship takes place, right. So it's not compelled. It is, it is scaring a bunch of us people that are, you know, VCs or executives and that, you know, don't want to get in trouble and will just like act on a precautionary principle and will just like take action themselves, even if they may not be required to. That to me is the more downside scenario is like, it's like, you know, they kind of do this and then a bunch of, you know, executive Bitcoin miners and the other folks that sort of the corporate layer, like they flinch, right? It's the, and it, and that, yeah. that I think is more like, that's the kind of game you're probably going to see play out as opposed to this like, oh, the big hammer of the state's going to come down and bunch of, you know, jackbooted thugs are going to come steal your hardware wallet, right? It's like, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So I think that's more, I think, you know, the boundaries of twice does something like that take place? What are the instruments of, you know, eventually those sorts of things end up in courts. It's like very boring, right? It's like these sorts of things end up in lawsuits. And two years later, after lots of court cases, you find out that like, maybe there's new case law, maybe there isn't. I don't know. I think people are, you're overestimating how much of like, there's going to be some major crackdown or even just like major legalization as opposed to just sort of this random semi drunken walk through kind of a novel regulatory landscape. And, you know, there'll be like hits to the left that everyone will like panic and say, this is like, you know, the nation states attacking Bitcoin versus like the other side, people will be like, Oh, look, like we've achieved, you know, the Trojan horse effect has, has won, right? Look, we've got Gillibrand like Lummis. I think it's going to be in the middle. You're going to sort of be bounced back and forth. I think net net, like my expectation is the trend towards, you know, gradual adoption, institutionalization and, you know, regularization of, of the legal and policy environment. But that's not to say that there aren't going to be, you know, different fights along the way that could be considered very severe. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. That's where I'm kind of at. And yeah, that's why, why BPI exists, right? It's sort of the whole premise of BPI is that like, you know, there's going to be those moments where you have to like engage and there's going to be like broader questions that you need to inform. I mean, one kind of, you know, uh, example here, I can't get the details, but like, you know, there is like, discussions in like the senior parts of like the technical apparatus of the white house, like looking at science and technology stuff. And they're like a bunch of scientists, they're a bunch of bureaucrats. Right. And they're like, they're told to look at this thing, right. Bitcoin. And like, whatever, like what, what are its energy kind of implications? And 
you know, like they don't necessarily have a prejudice against Bitcoin. They're just like Googling, right? And then they want to know, is this thing true? Or is this not true, right? And it's like a factual, somewhat empirical matter about what exactly is happening with Bitcoin mining and what is likely to happen in the future. And you make some assumptions, you make some kind of reasoned extrapolations and people can sort of fairly differ about which assumptions you build into which model. And, you know, and that's, that's like what scientists do, right? They like, Different, they develop models for different phenomena and then they put in different assumptions and they tease out kind of what's the kind of parameter space of possibilities. And that's kind of what they're doing. And it's like, I don't know, like from my reading is that there was relatively good faith, you know, honest kind of scientists trying to look at a question and trying to understand all aspects of the question. And, you know, where do they end up? Right. I, I don't know. But like, it wasn't like, here's the, we're coming, we're coming for you. Right. Kind of thing. It was, this is an open question. We need to capture data. We need to look at all the arguments, you know, and potential models. And also from a public policy perspective, this is the thing, right? There is like the default towards like risk aversion, right? Like in general, right? Any particular bureaucrat, like their job is mostly measured on like not messing something up and not having anything, not having blame for something bad happen on their watch or like be traced to their decision. So there's like a general kind of, you know, cautiousness on anything new that's going to lead them to potentially more like status quo bias, right? Like, okay, like what we have, like, let's not met, let's not like, like introduce something brand new that could like create all sorts of second and third order consequences. And then we get blamed for it. So there's just a general conservatism when it comes to crafting regulation about something new. And it's sort of, you know, sometimes hard to untangle, okay, how much of this is stifling innovation? And you're just like, you know, you're, you're in the pocket of big X where big X is like the incumbent power versus, you know, kind of prudent, precautionary kind of conservatism, right? To make sure that you're not making big sweeping changes before you've thought through the second and third order consequences. So I don't know, that's kind of mealy mouth and in the middle, not giving you the extreme answer, but that's, I think, you know, generally how reality shakes out. I think you make a great point in that by, by focusing or asking questions that are kind of very unrealistic, I think that there is a danger of not taking into consideration the more subtle, as you said, kind of wandering walk effects that a lot of these policies have. You know, th this recent tornado cash situation, as you point out, is going to have a significant chilling effect on the, the amount of risk that anyone is willing to take. So even if this is found to, or basically over, you know, years from now, if it's found that this was not reasonable and should not have happened, it will all, it will have had a very significant effect on what people are willing to do and what they view as acceptable risk going forward. And that's the real danger here. And that's kind of, I think what you're speaking to and fighting against with BPI. Yeah. I mean, it's about, you know, keeping the Overton window wide enough for just generally accepted principles of expression that we apply in other domains. Right. And just making sure that we're not applying anything inconsistent. Right. And, you know, there's like novel questions about how you interpret like a smart contract, et cetera, under, you know, law that was written before such a thing even existed. And, you know, like, like anything, right. Like sometimes you could describe malice to policy. Sometimes you can describe just like, you know, there's a blunt instrument and it's not necessarily sharpened to carve against these novel distinctions that the law wasn't written to take into account. And it's unfortunate because you would, you would hope that like policy would be like up to date on all the latest things that are happening and would like finally tune every regulatory intervention to like maximize benefit, minimize harm. But like very rarely is that the case. And you can have these consequences of, of kind of chilling effects. Um, yeah. And, but there's, you know, it's a balance of interest, right? So like, I'm not a maximalist when it comes to like moral principles, I'm like more of like a pragmatist and it's like, you have to balance every case kind of on its merits, right? Like, 
for example, if there was like a, a mixing service that was like 100% all for child pornographers, right? If that was the case and everyone knew, everyone knew, everyone agreed that that was 100% child pornographers, it'd be like, great, yeah, cut, like end it, right? Whatever you got to do, end it, right? And so, but like, whereas if it's like 0.0001% child pornography, like, well, it's like, the, that's like, generally speaking, like in any society, you're going to have like deviance that, and you don't like, crush you know civil liberties and freedom of expression and transactional privacy because of like the tiny tiny minority but like that's like a philosophical problem like where's the line that everyone would draw in terms of the trade-offs right like between that like zero zero one percent and 99.9 percent .9%, right and yeah so that is a yeah it's like a moral question right no one's ever like win like an imperial argument there right it's just people have different sort of prior sets of 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 commitments to different political you know value systems right and what the trade-offs between say national security and law enforcement are with respect to individual liberties and privacy like these things are inherently balanced in any society and you know you, you want to tip to, more towards the privacy and the, and the sort of, sort of angle and it's just a matter of how how you adjudicate that balance and and push back if you think that the balance has been tipped too far in one direction shifting topic slightly I'm curious if you have any, or significantly, I'm very curious if you have thoughts on this, this story that was published in the register about the U.S. banning the export of the technology used in three nanometer chip production. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the front lines of kind of the you know, intensifying state competition between the United States and, and China along all sorts of dimensions. And so economic war has been, has been in in, in hot, in sort of a hot mode for a while now. And chips are, you know, the centerpiece of that, of that conflict. We have undertaken a wide range of, of efforts to basically try to restrict China's ability to develop themselves domestically and their, and their sort of made in 2025 kind of priority industries of which semiconductors is one of their top priorities in 2020. China basically put building a kind of a self-contained semi-autarkic uh, semiconductor fabrication capability, like on par with how the state prioritized nuclear weapons development in the early history of the party. And so like they put this on the top of the list of like, we must like become self-sufficient in chips, including advanced logic chips, which right now are sort of five, you know, seven nanometers below, really five nanometers below. And the United States has really engaged in like a multilateral effort using things like the Wassenaar kind of conventions or agreements, can't what it's called, basically to like get like all of our multilateral partners to agree not to export certain technologies to China. And in particular, the advanced lithography equipment that's made by really two companies. This is a Dutch company, ASML, and a Japanese company, Nikon, that makes these advanced lithography machines that you need in order to produce chips. And so China has been sort of stuck at about 10 nanometers. They recently were able to kind of demonstrate an ability to produce seven nanometers with kind of the old version of those lithography equipment called DUV. They've been restricted from accessing EUV because we've, we've had an agreement with the Dutch to like, don't export the EUV kind of machines to China. And so China's basically been kind of struggling to, to kind of further their progress. And they're kind of frustrated. In fact, so frustrated that President Xi just announced uh, like a corruption investigation into three of the most senior officials that were in charge, basically of this ship indigenization effort. It's like some, some big names basically got the got the tap on the shoulder and we're, you know, taking, taking a, taking stage left because they poured, you know, I think $78 billion just in the past few years on, on, on sort of domestic chip investment. And this is like a major, a major thing, right? So we're trying to both stop China's ability to produce these advanced chips, like below seven nanometers, really at the same time that we're trying to 
reduce our vulnerability to Taiwan and TSMC, which right now produces about 92% of all the advanced logic chips in the world, and which are critical for our advanced consumer electronics, like you know, iPhones, et cetera, Tesla, AI, self-driving vehicles, as well as military applications, right? Like the Javelin missiles, <laughs> like we can't make, or some of our precision guided munitions and other advanced unmanned and manned systems that rely on these, on these chips. So we're trying to reshore some of that. It's going to take a while. I mean, we just passed the Chips Act to pour like $50 billion in domestic industry. That's probably like a 10th of what's going to be needed if we're going to be serious about that. So yeah, it is a, like the chips are the front line, but they're just sort of one, one manifestation of kind of a full front, like economic trade cyber diplomatic asymmetric sub-threshold conflict between the u.s and china that everyone hopes sort of stays that way and doesn't you know spill into an outright state-on-state -state armed conflict like in the south china sea or in the taiwan strait but that seems to be the direction we're heading yeah i was commenting earlier it's super interesting to me that you know publicly we recently said that like we support china and the one china policy and we don't support taiwan and being a separate entity and then simultaneously we're doing this kind of stuff I think it's, uh... I mean, yeah, I mean, there's like the whole Taiwan thing is a whole conversation. We have, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act, we have the three agreements, the six communiques that sort of basically say we're intentionally speaking out of both sides of our mouth as part of a quote unquote policy of strategic ambiguity to basically give the Taiwanese enough assurances that, you know, they're somewhat protected while not triggering the Chinese in violation of yeah, our, our one China policy and then you know, forcing them to you know, challenge that with an R you know, via a, a, a kinetic operation. So that's kind of like our policy is sort of inherently incoherent because that's, that's how we have to, that's how we have historically balanced you know, these irre irreconcilable strategic conflicts centered on the, on, uh, on the Taiwan question. And so, yeah, there is by definition, no coherence to that unless we're willing to fight a war to make that question clear, right? And, and Biden has come out like three times and he said in verbal comments that we would defend Taiwan. And, and then everyone has to basically say, well, that doesn't change our policy. And everyone's like, well, kind of does. And so we have kind of, you know, there's sort of this shift uh, in the policy world. It's super, everything goes like in these wonky technocratic terms of like, we need to move from strategic ambiguity to quote, strategic clarity where strategic clarity is where we're sort of unambiguous about our commitment to Taiwanese democracy and our willingness to defend it with force if it's if it's threatened by the Chinese. And so that is a question that's sort of everyone's sort of creeping up to, but no one's quite ready to make that official move. And, you know, everything in statecraft is about, you know, kind of keeping your, your options open. And, uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a ra radical change in policy now. But I think everyone's recognizing and waking up to the fact that, you know, things are not heading in a positive direction with respect to China, that, that it's much more likely to get worse across every aspect of our relationship than, than better in the next few years. It's just a question of how worse, right? Is it just more trade wars, more economic tit for tat, more, you know, kind of, you know, the, the sort of typical games of, of influence operations, et cetera, or, to, or does this tip into actual you know, armed conflict? And, yeah, like the warnings from the intelligence community and everyone is that it's more likely heading towards an armed conflict. But is that really the case? I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the various intelligence officials have come out in the past few months and just basically said, you know, the window is closing. It was like 2027, 2025. And now it's, you know, next 18 months is when it's when it's it's like the window for for uh, some sort of Taiwan action. Now, I think like the, the aperture of what that would mean, is pretty wide, right? Like people think Taiwan is like 
that means it's a full-scale invasion. It means like it's all-out war. You know, that's one scenario. It, but there's other uh, there's other options, right? That China could use to. And you kind of saw with the Pelosi visit of like laying out kind of their SOP for how such a conflict might unfold. Is their 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 game is to not create kind of a precipitating event that that brings the United States into the conflict before they've you know potentially had a had a had a had a window where they can block off the trade around Taiwan, you know, under the guise of some, you know, provocation or, or just, you know, because, and then maybe they go and they snip some of those 14 fiber optic internet cables that connect Taiwan to the outside world. Maybe there's some cyber operations to hit their satellite communications capabilities. Maybe there's some deniable domestic sabotage on their power grid and local infrastructure. Maybe there's some, you know, you know, targeted political assassinations and all these things are sort of, you know, intended to remain below the threshold by which, you know, President Biden, potentially like in an election year where he may or may not be a lame duck, is going to have to decide, do I, you know, put put the carrier ballot groups into harm's way, you know, and actually fire the first quote unquote shot to, to stop what would otherwise look like a kind of Crimea scenario. I don't know. That's like one. There's other ones where it's not as aggressive, where he just goes after some of the, you know, outlying islands is like a show, basically like a, like a propaganda victory. He goes after, you know, Dongyin or the, or the Pradas or one of those other kind of islands close to the mainland and dares the Taiwanese to sort of fight to take back, you know, you know an island has like a, maybe a handful of people on it or a few hundred people. So yeah, that's like, that is, if I'm looking ahead to like the next two years of like geopolitical risk manifesting as like acute global risk for everything, that that's probably the top of the list. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of Western multinationals are now recalibrating their position with respect to China. You know, it depends on what what business they're in, but everyone now has to consider scenarios where, you know, tensions are getting worse, and then have to consider these kind of tail risks that are now not not necessarily off the table for for their for their business, which they built under a, a sort of a warm canopy of globalization, right? Like a lot of these companies went into China and Russia, all all around, all around the world, you know, in sort of Pax America, Pax Americana, you know, global hegemony. And like the you know, Washington consensus, like capitalism is one and we're going to convert China and Russia and all these other states to the you know, global capitalist order. And that's clearly not worked out. <laughs> and, and but now they have these business entanglements there and they're trying to figure out, OK, what can we how can we protect ourselves? What do we what do we do in a world that's deglobalizing potentially rapidly? So. I know that you laid out one such possible scenario and we could literally spend the rest of our time here playing the what if game and come up with so many possible scenarios that will never come to light. But I'm more curious on where your expectations are of the net effect and how US citizens would feel any sort of China-Taiwan conflict. Like, Where is it going to be felt in our lives day to day or will it kind of just be a news story and we in America move on from it? Uh, there's very few scenarios where I think anyone moves on from a U.S.-China conflict. <laughs> the question is whether people, you know, are still walking at the end of it. That's, let's put that, put that scenario on the side. So we don't, we don't get into the sort of the worst case scenarios. But assuming it's basically like, in my, in my view, like the more plausible scenario, again, it's like plausible. It's hard to put like probabilities to these things because they're, inherently judgments of like very few people and you know oftentimes wars are precipitated by misjudgment and accident and miscalculation and so even if you're trying to reason 
through like the game theory tree of what the optimal decision would be, even if you had that game theory tree fully mapped out, like people make bad decisions. There's they're they didn't eat breakfast and you know, whatever, right? Like, like weird things happen, mistakes are made, miscalculations, misjudgments, et cetera. So it's sort of hopeless to sort of like compute the probability tree, even if you could. So that like caveat aside, like one, I think, I, 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 and this is just me being kind of maybe, maybe cynical, but I just don't see the United States, unless the, unless the Chinese are really dumb and like kill thousands of our sailors, like in an unprovoked first strike, which, which could be what they do. Like they could hit our bases in Guam and Japan, maybe some of our other assets in the region as like a first strike to like wipe out our ability to then counter their, their, their military operations and then try to declare fait accompli and hope that we just sort of eat eat the losses, that would be pretty hard, pretty hard to eat. I don't see the United States, I think if there's one thing that could galvanize, right, the United States public in our kind of current political device and environment would be like a first strike that killed like 10,000 sailors. Like people would be like, no, 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 like that's not cool. Like we're not going to just take that lying down. I think like that would be like the Pearl Harbor. Okay, yeah, like this is like a kind of a rally around the flag kind of scenario potentially. Even that may or may not be enough, right? But I think if there was going to be something like, that would be the one mistake if they were not, they didn't want us to get into conflict would be to do that sort of first strike and then, and uh, try to try to try to knock us out. So they're probably not going to do that, which means our assets will still be there. And it's a question of them trying to undermine the motivation and rationale for getting us in the fight. And in the, in the, in the absence of something precipitating like that, right? Like, like thousands of our, of our men and women, you know, killed in like a bolt from the blue first strike. It's gonna be hard to motivate, you know, like a total like war, like mobilization, right? Like, like, oh, hey, everyone, we're gonna go to war and we're gonna like, you know, get serious because, you know, the lights and the internet went off in Taiwan and there's reports of some bad things happening. And we're gonna, you know, mobilize our entire society for war with China. I'm just not sure that the political capital would be there, especially in like an election year. And yeah, so like the cynical play to me is that we would basically run like the Russia playbook, but like at scale. And we would basically say like, we need to fight like a total economic war with China. And we would try to rally kind of the global community, so to speak, of sort of our Western allies to you know, sanction China. And that's gonna be really difficult because, you know, if the Russia, you know, uh, cascading consequences to the energy markets, et cetera, were large after their invasion, China's would be 10, 20 times larger, right? We would, we're talking global depression. So yeah, like even in like the benign scenario where we don't actually fight China and we're not in like a, a war that escalates and risks, you know, like big bad things happening, you're still talking global depression, breakdown, supply chains. And you may look at like what we rely on from China. I mean, like pharmaceuticals, right? Like, like doctors are not able to get like basic medicines and basic supplies, critical inputs for a lot of our manufacturing processes. The global world is built with China at the heart of it, right? Like Russia energy is important. And there's a reason why we didn't really sanction Russian energy, right? We haven't really put a cap on oil. We haven't really sanctioned Russian oil. We're like doing these like little things on the margin to like make them feel some pain. Russia's still running a, a you know, massive current account surplus. And it's like, I see no, and, and they actively did the invasion, right? Like they're actively murdering lots of people, right? So like, I see that as a basically evidence that we would basically do the same for China. And probably with even less effect because China is much more integrated into the global trade and production system than, than Russia is. Like you can marginally substitute like raw commodities, like price just gets higher, right? Like if you don't have enough oil, you're still oil around, you can substitute for that oil, but it's just more expensive. And so everything gets more expensive. 
but you can't actively substitute for like manufacturing and factories that just don't exist anywhere else, right? Or don't exist in scale. And, and where we've optimized global supply chains for like the one part that comes out of that one Sengen factory. Well, if that parts doesn't come out of the Sengen factory, well then like the product doesn't get made, right? Like we saw some of that during COVID, right? Just like supply chain snarls and everything just because of, of the backlogs and the, and the COVID shuts down. So that would, it would be that on steroids and that like indefinitely. And so it would be a complete mess. Like, like it would be really bad <laughs> for the global economy. So yeah, that is a, uh, that is a bad scenario where like, you know, no one's going to be immune from that. And that's where the, you know, money printer has to go majorly burr. You're muted. Like, yeah. I knew it. I was like, fuck. I stunned you. I stunned you into silence. Just the that's right. You know, China conflict scenario. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm still not over the fact that you said, like, are we going to be able to walk at the end of that conflict? So I'm not even going to try to unpack the doomsday scenario that you alluded to there, Matt. I don't want to, I want to stay on China, but if there's anything else on the China-Taiwan stuff, feel free to to chime in. But I want to actually highlight and talk with you now about an article that you actually tweeted out from Michael Pettis regarding Russia accepting the yuan, rupee, and lira for their energy exports. Look, I've long said on this show that those meetings between Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, before the invasion of Ukraine were not some coincidence. Those two have also been colluding a meeting with the president of Iran to better understand how they survived under sanctions. Lo and behold, now Russia is under US sanctions. And should China take any action towards Taiwan, I think we all I won't speak for you guys. I My expectation is they would immediately put, be put under some sort of sanctions. And now all of a sudden you have this almost three-headed monster that the US has said, we don't like you guys. We don't like what you do. But there's enough energy, money, and production between those three countries alone to just continue to operate as they see fit. I guess my first question is, is there a point in the near future where US sanctions fail to be as effective as they have been historically? It really depends on if China decides to just pull the plug on their development model for the past 20 years. I mean, like their credit field growth has been a function of their integration into, into the global euro dollar market, right? So they take dollars as what they earn in trade surplus and they recycle those into you know, on the margin, US treasury securities, but also dollar denominated lending throughout the Belt Road Initiative, et cetera. So they've like develop their their economy basically trying to you know reallocate that surplus into domestic investment and an overseas kind of asset accumulation it's been working for them up to a point they sort of reached a point of kind of debt saturation because they didn't really want to liberalize their domestic capital market everyone had to move into real estate so about 90 trillion dollars of domestic real estate as like a massive bubble it's less of a it's a different problem than we than our housing bubble was and so Basically, I'll bracket off that China has major economic problems that they're going to have to deal with. They can take a lot of pain because it's a matter of distributing those losses internally to the society. And there's one thing totalitarian systems are good at is making people feel pain. And it doesn't lead to economic growth or economic productivity improvements. But, you know, the first order objective of the party is political stability and their continued rule. That's what they'll maxim that that's what they'll optimize for in, in an environment where they have, you know, less access to dollar liquidity, credit deal leveraging you know, banking crises, et cetera. But I fundamentally don't think it's going to undermine regime stability. I mean, they have, they have gulags and lots of people that they can, <laughs> that they can, they can apply to enforce those things as we saw with COVID zero policies. So that is a, like one, one variable is China's 
you know, decision about how much they you know, want to continue with their economic model, which relies on, on this engagement and really kind of interdependency with global euro dollar system. But like stepping back, right, what we're seeing is like the result of like fundamental conflicts between a system that was built on, you know, the marginal pricer of energy, OPEC plus Russia or OPEC plus, the marginal product pricer of like finished goods, right, which has been China, like they, they make the stuff and the marginal pricer of money, which is credit, which is basically the dollar G7 system. And so you've had this system when those were in frenemy mode, you know, energy markets, finished production and dollar system all kind of working together as a global integrated system, right? Where there was Ricardian trade, there was, you know, optimization of, okay, like you've got the energy, I've got the consumer demand and you've got the surplus savings. We're going to start moving those things around and have a nice global system that, that works, you know, decently well. When geopolitics comes in <laughs> and breaks those, the, like those, those, um, frenemy relationships, like there's no like easy new equilibrium that gets established. It just starts disintegrating in weird and, and, and potentially just like nonlinear ways. So like the, the Russia piece is like, all right, well, we just knock off some portion or, or, or of the energy supply to the global system, but we got to find substitutes for that. Luckily we have some substitutes in the form of like liquid natural gas and, and maybe we can juice a little bit more out of OPEC and maybe we don't sanction Russia as hard. And so we can kind of like keep the system basically going while like, you know, penalizing some people on the margin and, you know, making sure that those Russian oligarchs don't have their yachts, et cetera. But fundamentally, the system doesn't change. German industry can just like wait it out for like a year or two and then turn the taps back on. So there's one scenario which like everyone's just sort of like hoping the system can come back into place because like everything was built on it. <laughs> and so they're just like waiting for things to sort of slowly evolve. And then eventually everyone just gets bored and then says, yes, like we want jobs and basic quality of life. And that means we have to turn those, you know, pipes back on and, you know, then that's so be it. I don't know whether this system completely breaks or whether we're just sitting in this like really uncomfortable period where there's so much strain between those different legs of the stool that it just is really uncomfortable for a while. And then eventually people realize that it has to be reconstituted basically in the same, in the same fashion. And that'd be the bold case for like the global dollar system for like the next, you know, 10, 15 years until our debts take, take, take care of it, you know, like at a, at a more fundamental level. But the more alternative case is what you pointed to with Pettis of like, okay, is this Eurasian axis of authoritarians really trying to posture to challenge the global order premised on, you know, US military and economic hegemony. And at the center of that is the US treasury security recycled in into the uh, US dollar surplus recycled into US treasury securities, basically. And treasury securities becoming the funding collateral for the $700 trillion of derivatives around the world. Like, that's a big question. Like 70, 75% of all global cross-border trade or cross-border dollar like flows are, fi are, are finance capital. It's not trade. It's not like remittances or any of that sort of stuff. And so like, I see these things, these stories about people in certain countries, you know, de-dollarizing certain aspects of their trade and, you know, argument or you know, announcements that they might be shifting some portion of their, of their reserve savings away from the dollar into a basket of other currencies as like marginal hedging that like is indicative of more political signaling than any necessarily like an economic phase shift potentially just because structurally like changes to the global monetary system really only happen as a result of fundamental changes to the global geopolitical balance of power right it's just like the, the the predominant monetary order is always downstream of the dominant political and geopolitical power order and so you need to have that power arrangement fundamentally changed before you can really have dramatic change in the monetary order. It's just 
Like whoever has the most power kind of writes the rules and then can enforce those rules and can basically dictate terms to the majority of, of, of actors in that system. That's sort of what power is. And so if you if you have that power, then that power is is going to be used to enforce you know the trade and, and sort of finance capital arrangements that that we currently have. So yeah, I see those as just indicatives of like certain certain parts of the system want to protest, right? Want to like make a make an announcement, but like really you'd have to see like geopolitical arrangements shift more dramatically. There are people like that that could act as tipping power. So like in a multipolar system, it doesn't take much though to have that geopolitical order shift because you only need a few kind of key balancing powers to sort of pick a side basically. And in my view, those balancing powers are basically kind of the Eurasian periphery and mostly like Middle East, like, like oil producing states and, and India principally, maybe some parts of South Asia, but it's really where they go. And they're the ones that you see now kind of hedging in the middle, right? Like Saudi Arabia, like doing lots of, you know, arms deals with the United States, like Lockheed Martin is building, you know, missiles there, you know, we, Biden just went there, they, you know, they're trying to keep some semblance of relationship there. MBS just poured you know, billions of dollars back into U.S. equity markets from his private piggy bank, the PIF. So, you know, they want to still stay on the good side of the dollar system. But you also hear, you also see President Xi is going to visit Riyadh and get the whole pageantry, much more kind of of a, of a, say, a warm welcome than Biden got when he visited Riyadh. And there's probably going to be a lot of announcements coming out of that meeting about, you know, close partnership and, you know, trade relationships and kind of like warm, warm diplomatic relationships between Saudi Arabia and, and, and China, you know, the sale of some, some oil in Yuan, joint investment projects, et cetera. And, you know, I think that to me just shows, okay, okay, you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to, you know, put itself in the middle of that relationship and extract, you know, like what you would do, you would want to play both sides against each other, right? Like, you know, now, now that gives you power. Now, now you can start to trade one off against the other. Same thing with India, right? India gets the majority of their military supplies from Russia. And they get to basically import cheap oil, refine it and export it and capture the spread uh, at the same time that they still want to be in the quad with the United States to try to counter China, which, you know, they have major border conflicts with. So everyone is basically going to be positioning themselves, you know, in this multipolar system to try to play East and West against each other. And so you could imagine that over time, that the sort of aggregation of hedging behavior by all those tipping powers leads to you know gradual pressure to de-dollarize specifically de-dollarizing their reserve assets so their holdings of treasury securities and western equities etc and and you know that that's not like a binary like flip right it's going to be a gradual devolution of kind of a system at a certain you know like you know apotheosis of us power that sort of gradually gets drawn down as the system becomes more more balanced across different sort of sort of centers of power. So yeah, I don't think it's gonna be this grand collapse. It's gonna unless there is a war, right? Like the one thing that can change that is if you fight and lose a war. Like that's the one thing that will like without fail in history is like, you know, like it's a new system is if you fight and lose a war, especially if you're like the top dog and then you fight a, a challenger state and you lose to the challenger state, then you know you're in an you're an entirely new regime and it's a it's a different ball game. Wait, it's hang like, on, no, hang on. I need to unpack that with you, Matt, because yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna list a few wars that I do not think the U.S. won. I'm gonna start with Afghanistan, and I'll go to Iraq. I'll go down to Vietnam. I'd argue we didn't even win the Korean War. So, yeah, but, but the narrative we pushed is that we definitely won that war. 
I understand the narrative that we push forward. However, those wars, I should say, those are all those are all proxy wars, and that's like so. As an imperial power, right? Your job isn't to really try to win those wars. Your job, I mean, it would be nice, like from the from the empire's perspective, to win those wars. But the job of those conflicts was to try to impose your will on the periphery, right? So, like, you're fighting in the you're fighting in the periphery, right? You're fighting over the periphery. You're trying to constantly, basically, reestablish to challenger states that they shouldn't challenge you, right? And I think Afghanistan was an interesting like potential tipping point in the perception among challenger states that the United States was vulnerable. You could argue that like partly of, of our, of our, you know, dignified withdrawal from Afghanistan with people falling out of, out of, out of C-17s, you know, was probably something that like president Xi brought up. Uh, I mean, uh, president Putin brought up with, with Xi, you know, in the lead up to the Olympics is like, like, look, look, they're, they're a wounded animal, right? Like they're, they're weak. Like this is the, this is the moment to strike. Right. And you know, that's, that's the whole game of power perception, right? Is the balance of interest in your favor or not? But really those are not like, those are not decisive conflicts, right? Those are proxy wars that just sort of drain your treasury, undermine morale, weaken your military capacity, et cetera. Like a decisive conflict is like peer peer level conflict. Yeah, for like, sure. Like the United States, like Navy going up against the PLAN, like in the South China Sea and seeing, okay, like do those hypersonics actively hit our, our subs? Does our, do our subs take out their, take out their surface ships? Do their space weapons hurt our satellites? You know, does our cyber weapons take down their domestic <laughs> kind of comms? Like that's where all these instruments of national power that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on right? Like we're just sort of waiting. They're just waiting there. Right. And it's like, if those work and beat the challenger state in an all out war, then like, then, then you maybe get a, a new lease on life. Right. You've now suppressed the, like the, the challenger has now lost has to go lick his wounds for another, you know, decade or two. Right. Or the, the, the winner is so weakened by the fight that everything, you know, basically falls into like a, like a dark ages. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's, 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 yeah, again, that's like, those are decisive conflicts. So like history has usually showed us are, is what's required to precipitate a massive change in the monetary order, right? Without that, you're looking at a much more slow, you know, a slow process of, of balancing, a balancer sort of tipping powers, marginally hedging over time, and like the dominance of a particular monetary arrangement gradually following. And then maybe there's a trend line there that's like, all right, it's now weak enough that it doesn't take much. It takes like a natural disaster. It takes another financial crisis. It takes something less than a major power war to sort of everyone agree that system's not working. We're, we're, we're breaking that system. We're now just going to just flip to a neutral reserve asset system like a commodity bank or like a gold, like a Bitcoin or something like that. And everyone just agrees, you know, that there needs to be like a, a fundamentally new monetary regime. But that's going to take... Like we're not there now, but you can see the seeds being planted and, you know, potential kind of instability that could play out. But you never know. Like it's like boiling water to like 99 degrees doesn't look any different. Right. And then you get to 100 degrees and it's like very different. Right. Cause you oh, man. I love Would that be a metaphor and analogy. I love that uh, image at least. Yeah. I mean, these are not well, in the, I'm like, like a total physics nerd. Like these are like nonlinear dynamic coupled systems. Yeah. You get that phase change. Right. And so it's like, you can see these things that are just like, you know, something's happening there, but like you can't predict how it's going to evolve and you don't know if it's going to like cycle with like some degree of regularity. And all of a sudden, like you see those like graphs, like the chaotic system, it's like it's going through some sort of attractor and then all of a sudden it goes, Poof, it just flies out. Yeah. Right. It just happens. Right. There's no way to like predict when that would have happened. But like in any sort of chaotic dynamical system like that, it can just break. 
Well said. Well said. Wait, are you going to keep going down this rabbit hole? I'm, I'm going down this rabbit hole more because uh, the way I understood. <laughs> Get out of the way. Well, I want to. I want to unpack because the way I am digesting Matt, what you are saying is, we have one of two scenarios for from the Bitcoin lens. How do we get rid of the dollar? And it sounds to me like we either go into global war and the U.S. has to lose to lose its place as the global reserve currency, or it's the slow, long, drawn out process where eventually everyone has left the dollar except for us. And then we're just left holding the bag. Did I understand that essentially what you are saying is you are on China's side for World War III? Well, it's interesting when you say like the dollar, because I think the dollar could survive like lots of weird things because the dollar is just a unit of account, right? It's just like a symbol you put next to a certain balance that people treat, treat as like a, a money that they're willing to exchange goods and services for. What's actively undergirds that system as you have account is basically a system of collateral, right? So the dollar is really built on the US Treasury security as the collateral for the global dollar system. So like all those like balances that have dollars next to them, right, are really built on in the current permutation of the Euro dollar system, like collateral, like treasury securities that have been pledged that are now basically what is being held by different counterparties in exchange for those dollar liability. And when people are, you know, in a mode of like trusting and, you know, general optimism, they're willing to lend and relend their collateral and take on, you know, extensive counterparty relationships, this sort of chain of rehypothecation of those of, the, of those underlying securities and generate a lot, you know, basically it's like fractional reserve without any reserve, right? Just like it's generate, you know, an indefinitely large amount of dollar-based dollar liabilities in the offshore system that only have a par value as a dollar to the extent that all those counterparties eventually trace back to a commercial bank onshore in the United States that has access to bank reserves from the Fed. And so that's that's what you, that's what elasticity in the dollar system kind of means is the chain of counterparties in the offshore system that are that is basically um, the 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 length of which is basically basically a function of how much trust there is in 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 you know how much collateral people have to post to make those dollar-based claims. So I say all that to say that like the dollar system is far away from like what the U.S. authorities control, right? So people think of the dollar as like this instrument of U.S. national power. But like for decades, the dollar system has just grown up organically completely outside the, the, the sphere of control of, of the Fed or anyone else in, in the Treasury Department. In fact, you can almost see what's happening now, really since March 2020, something but maybe back to 2008 but like they've been trying to get control over this like completely independent non-sovereign dollar system right so like when people say the death of the dollar it's like well like the world has just decided to denominate like liquid liabilities in dollars that have like nothing to do with like the fed right in the sense that like they're not liabilities of the fed or liabilities of the commercial bank of the fed they're just fictitious entries in a in a in an offshore balance sheet that for matters of convenience, people decide this is a, this is a, this is a, this is like a shelling point for us. And so I think you can have the dollar system as like some version of the Euro dollar that has a dollar claim attached to it continue to survive, even if the underlying asset for that system gets completely destroyed, like the treasury security. So when I say like the stability of the global dollar system, it's really the stability of the global dollar treasury system. Because the dollar has been around for, I don't know, since what are the first bank of the United States, right? Like we just decided that all currency in the United States is going to be called dollars. But before we had the Fed, we had different state banks and uh, or different banks that basically issued their own notes and 
They did often traded at a discount. So there was like a JP Morgan dollar. There was the bank in San Francisco dollar, whatever. And so there are different banking dollars that had to trade at some discount to each other until we had the Fed. And then there was like, you know, parity in the, in the onshore dollar system. Now we have that globally. Now we have, you know, uh, Bank of Singapore. Now we have, you know, random bank in the Middle East in Dubai that's issuing dollar-based kind of liabilities. We call it a shadow banking system. And that's that's what leads to these massive financial crises is that shadow banking system massively expands liabilities and then doesn't actually have the underlying reserves or, or, or collateral to make the money good. And then you get bank runs and you get massive waves of default. The Fed has been trying to, and then the Fed has been in a position to basically try to backstop that global dollar system. That's our acute vulnerability right now is like, we have an obligation to keep those offshore claims, apparently money good. And that means opening up things like swap lines with foreign central banks to flood dollars, basically, you know, route them through the foreign central banks to their commercial banks. And then from the commercial banks in that offshore country to their other like their other counterparties. It's like pushing, you know, like drugs through the system and hoping it gets to, you know, the cells that need it. And that's like, that's, they're basically trying to control this really fundamentally uncontrollable global euro dollar system, which is what they, that's the, that's the tail that wags the dog, not like the Fed funds rate FOMC meetings. Like those are completely irrelevant. It is really like, what is the shadow bank euro dollar system doing? <laughs> and, and what is the sort of web of, 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 you know, invented dollar liabilities and how stable are those claims with, this, with respect to each other. And so that's, that's the system. And so that system is very vulnerable, very, very unstable. That system, you know, has to be kind of reformed in some way. The incumbent powers are trying to re reform it in a certain direction to try to keep the structural, the structures of that system intact while they kind of, you know, somewhat like euthanize it, right? Like that's, you could almost, I mean, it gets really technical, but it's basically a combination of like global CBDC and central clearing for the treasury market. And basically, it, you know, forcing everyone to hold treasuries in a regulated way so they can never sell them and create kind of what we saw in March, 2020, when, you know, the, 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 the Euro dollar system had a heart attack in the treasury market completely froze. And that's basically the ball game, right? Like we're trying to basically trying to keep control of this somewhat almost fundamentally uncontrollable system. And it, almost puts us in like a very awkward position because like we had to effectively give China in March, 2020 dollar liquidity, allow them to, you know, safely and in a non-market way, exchange their treasury securities for dollars to meet, to meet their, 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 their liability requirements. Like, would we do that in a future Taiwan war? I don't know, but like, you get these situations where like to manage that dollar system has these sort of inherent conflicts with their geopolitical obligations or geopolitical interests potentially. And that's where, I mean, I, in my view, right, people sometimes, I don't know, like what's the national version of personification? Like they personify the nation's interests with like the currency, right? They think, oh, like the dollar is like the flag of the team that I fight for. And it's just, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, I think it's like, like a category error, right? Like it's just, it's just a medium of exchange, a unit of account that like global banks and shadow banks and just random institutions and entities around the world have chosen to use as a unit of account. It's almost irrelevant what that is. You could name it blah, 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 right? But it's what, what really matters is where do people hold their reserve asset savings? Where do surplus savings in the world go? Because the unit of account is just a means for trade, right? You just need to say, all right, if I'm going to trade with you and you're going to trade with someone else, it's probably better for trade if we all agree to trade in the same unit of account. It just makes transaction costs much more lower. That's why the dollar has a really strong network effect. It's because you're in a social network that everyone else is already in. It's just easier to, to denominate all of your mutual claims in the same unit. Use a dollar, sure. 
but that's sort of entirely separate from the 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 reasons why you would hold a treasury security or other kind of us quote unquote safe assets as collateral or as like where you store your savings right because there you're making not like a, a medium of account unit of, of a, a medium of exchange unit of account decision you're making like a long-term store value decision like is this an asset that i believe is going to fundamentally hold value for me is it going to hold that value in a way that i can actively access under all sorts of conditions including conditions maybe where like you know, the political authorities in the United States, you know, may not be too kind to me. And so like, if you're like, you know, you know, like a, an autocrat in a, in a developing market, like you hold all of your reserve savings in, you know, the United States, well, you basically, you know, that's a form of, of a leverage the United States has over you because they can now just restrict your access to, to your national savings. And so that's, I think like the basic idea behind like a Bretton Woods three, which I don't know, I'm kind of in the middle on, but like the basic premise is, a marginal shift away from dollar-based reserve assets, principally treasury securities, for like outside money, you know, gold, commodities, coin is like a synthetic emerging version of that once its volatility converges a little bit more. But that's that's the basic idea. So yeah, to really answer these, this is me talking for like, I don't know how long, but like to answer these big fundamental questions about the global monetary arrangement, the kind of geopolitical order, you have to like, like, and that's just giving, skimming the surface, right? There's all these sort of technical questions of the plumbing of the current system, how it's currently designed, how it kind of got to that current state. And then what are the conditions in which that system would evolve in different directions, given a sort of present fragility, but also its present strengths. And that's like, oof, if I knew the real answer to that question, I, I would, I would have a, you know, I would, I'd be worth a lot of money right now, but I'm making certain just sort of best guesses. Oh. Once you have the answer to that, you and I are making a quick little trip down to Vegas and you're going to tell me what numbers to bet on, on the roulette table too. I just came back from Vegas. Yeah. Oh shit. I, uh, how'd you do? I didn't lose. I'll just say that. Uh, oh shit. You won dozens of dollars. I, I, I got free drinks for like a few hours. Holy shit. I ended up just really netting out zero. Yeah. No. Nice. Nice. <laughs> you, you mean, what you, so to explain, hey, that's a win. That is all the win. money you lost canceled out with how much you drank you must be I mean, a pretty big drinker yeah. yeah it was a yeah good time there was a you know big big cybersecurity conferences there so just trying not to get my my, my phone pwned oh yeah that's always that is always a challenge i, I want to ask just generally we've talked about a lot of stuff and thank you for being so generous with your time what have we not asked you or what have we not covered today that you've been thinking about a lot either ideally in related to Bitcoin, but I'm just curious in general, what's going through that head of yours? Well, we talked a lot about monetary kind of stuff. I think, I guess I have like a, a, a meta thought, which is like, what am I paying too much attention to? I guess would be my response. Like sometimes everyone focuses so much on what the Fed is gonna do at the next meeting as if it really makes a you know, the sort of world historical difference and not like understanding kind of the deep structural kind of things. And so like what I'm really focused on and, and Bitcoin plays a role in this is like the, like the long history of kind of the modern era. You can go back to say World War One if you really want to go back that far, really kind of really understanding like what, what drives these big structural change. Cause like if your thesis for Bitcoin is more than just what it is now, right? Like it could, it could say plateau, and this isn't just once year, but like there's a scenario in which it just sort of plateaus at I don't know a few hundred thousand dollars a coin, and it's like a it's like a baby brother to gold, or it's parity with gold, and it's got some reserve value, 
it's like very significant. That would probably be like a really successful investment thesis for anyone that's purchased it now, right? So like that would be like a big deal, right? Where Bitcoin sort of slowly monetizes to that level, but sort of stays stays at that level for whatever reason. Would it play as much of like a, it would be like a macro asset, but it would probably be at like the level of like, you know, it's like half of gold. Maybe it's like the level, it's equivalent to like what the fangs are doing. So big and important, everyone's got to pay attention to what Bitcoin's doing. Yeah, but it's already, I mean, Bitcoin's already sort of like that, just but in terms of like CNBC reports on its price every morning and people talk about it because it's got sort of a certain, I don't know, captures the clicks or whatever. But like beyond that, right, once it's, everyone, once it's in everyone's portfolio or everyone has whatever they can, whatever they decided to, 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 to allocate to it. Okay, that's like not that interesting, though, from like this like long history of like world historical monetary geopolitical changes, right? I don't think at that level it would really play that much of a role, right? It would play like a marginal role in as much as any global asset plays a role as, you know, reserve managers have some portion allocated to it. But I think it's more interesting is like, that's like it's reserve asset function, right? But there's only certain demand for reserve assets, right? Once people have as much of their liquid savings in a certain thing that they consider safe, you know, they just try to keep it at that level. What's really going to, you know, move Bitcoin to become much more integrated as like a globally relevant like, technology is what's going to happen on like the development side, right? It's going to happen on, you know, how much does Lightning get get globally adopted? How much do these other applications in sort of traditional finance start to integrate Lightning into e-commerce, into retail payments? What are these other sort of third layer applications that are sort of hinted at but haven't really demonstrated kind of a scale? You know, and, and like that's what I'm most interested in seeing like the game play out on a technology layer as opposed to like the monetary layer. And like the monetary thing will do its thing. I think people pay a lot of attention to that. For, you know, on Wall Street, because it's like an investment asset, they want to just capture alpha. But I don't think as much people in that world pay attention to like the technology side, right? Like, is this something that, you know, is it just, is it all talk, right? Like, there's a lot of like, a lot of future visions of where the, the entire world is using Bitcoin through multiple layers. And you've got decentralized identity, you've got, you know, a whole suite of more peer to peer kind of monetization business models that facilitate, you know, fundamentally like a potential transformation of the way, like, you know, basic economic activity like works, right? Like if, if you don't need to use a bunch of these intermediaries, you can do streaming payments for lots of different things. If you can actively you know, monetize and capture a whole range of different types of activity in a different way and monetize things that weren't able to be monetized before in a way that actually preserves like, you know, autonomy, right? <laughs> like, uh, preserves and kind of like maybe rewinds the internet back to what it was supposed to be in the sort of the original kind of sort of a cypherpunk vision as a peer-to-peer -peer system. That's that's to me like most interesting of like, like what would be like, that would turn like Bitcoin from being just like this interesting and really good investment thesis to like a globally relevant like technology, right? And I think that's, you know, people sometimes mix the two. It's like, oh, well, it means that if it's globally relevant technology, it must have been successful as a, as a monetary investment. That's, that's likely to be the case, but I don't know, like I, I'm, I'm really interested in following like all those sorts of developments. And yeah, that's like with any technology, it's just alone do I predict like the monetary and geopolitical arrangements is very difficult, right? Like what, what crazy new idea is someone going to have in two years? It's only enabled by something that was done today. Right. And how much is that, how much is that like really the exponential process, right? Where like innovation begets other innovation. I don't know, but yeah, there's gonna be lots of like, I don't know. This is like, it's a fascinating topic because it goes into like, because if you think of that as being the potential end state, maybe not the end state by any means, you're going to have to like, then also assess how it's going to have to integrate with the existing structures of politics and regulation and governance 
that already exist, right? Like the world isn't just adopting Bitcoin in the abstract, right? There's a whole like edifice, extremely, you know, like established systems of power, of, of you know, regulation, just institutional inertia that are going to have to react to this phenomenon in different ways. Yeah. So that's like, I don't know, I'm trying to zoom out from what the heck, heck, heck the Fed's going to do and just like, what is this going to mean in the next five or 10 years? And yeah, I just think that, you know, in my background, like I, I assessed lots of like tail scenarios, like most of them bad, right? Like what is the 1% chance of that bad thing happening that would have like a really dramatic consequence? And just, just because it's very unlikely, doesn't mean you ignore it. If it has a major consequence, like you have to assess it. You have to like take that scenario seriously and then play it through and then see like, what you would do, what you think someone else would do, what the sort of second and third order consequences would be. And I think, you know, people, I think just have a blind spot with respect to these other topics that, yeah, like going back to the beginning, like are somewhat icky and, and it's like, well, you, you know, you're just, you're putting an artificial blind spot on it. It's like, this is a potential scenario may not be likely everyone has a different distribution of their, you know, beliefs over how likely that is. But I think we're, we're now reached the point where like the, the median belief should be like non-zero and should be like high enough to warrant taking like these potential scenarios of like Bitcoin monetizes the level of gold or more and any scenarios where it becomes like a globally relevant kind of transaction medium, a payment layer for lots of different, you know, technology applications. Like that's, you got to analyze that. Like that's be like a new thing, right? Like you got to figure out what the implications would be. And now it could, again, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't know, like a, uh, you might've heard like, I have, I have certain cynic attributes, right? Like there's lots of bad things that can happen. So I'm used to looking at the bad things. I'm just like predisposed by my background, but yeah, I think you need to look at those different tail risks and tail opportunities kind of with the same, with the same balanced perspective. Yeah. So that's why I'm focused on, you know, that was a fantastic lots, lots of interesting stuff in the news, but it sometimes can be a distraction. I love it. Yeah. Focusing on or trying to figure out essentially what is signal versus noise and where is one being sucked into thinking about something that is not actually pertinent. Matt, it has been such a pleasure having you. You've got your, your Twitter handle in your name on the screen, your lower third, that's the word I'm looking for. But I would encourage everyone that is listening to follow Matt on Twitter. He puts out incredible content and uh, very funny content as well. You always have a sense of humor. Is there anything else that you want to let people know about before we wrap the show today? No, I mean, go follow BPI. I mean, we're doing some good work. I give a shout out to Troy and Margo and, and uh, David Zell and Grant McCarthy. And there's a whole bunch of fellows on there. They're really doing really good stuff. And Andrew Bailey, the whole philosopher uh, crew. I mean, it's a really exciting group of people. So if you're not following BPI or following those other fellows, you, you really should. I mean, there's some of the like leading experts in you know, the climate question, the energy question, like these questions about the economy and and regulation and policy. So yeah, really, really, I'm like, like the least qualified person in that group. And David Zell is like a, a one man machine. <laughs> that kid is like, I'm sure you know, right? He's just, he's, he's in three places at once, constantly just grinding. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I just feel like I'm, I'm old when I, when I hear what he's up to. So yeah, follow, follow David Zell, kind of the, kind of the, the, the energy behind the guy and, he and Grant are really just like doing, doing good work over there. Yeah. I'm not sure how much your audience has like, you know, is in the C-suite of a, of a board of hundred multinational and has questions about cybersecurity, geopolitics, but that's actually my day job is, is doing that. <laughs> so yeah. And on the off chance that there's anyone like that, that um, has interesting geopolitical cybersecurity questions, you know, well, that's what funny enough. I, I know on good authority that both Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are viewers of the show. So 
they, they their donor base has enough of that. And my my last little joke of today is David Zell. Literally, I'm staring at him. Did not move or acknowledge your shout out. <laughs> well, yeah, because he's, he's probably in a catatonic state. He's probably just like his eyes are just open, but he can't, he's not responding to external stimuli. Yeah, it's true. He actually sleeps upside down like a bat. He just like grabs onto the ceiling with his toes and then just sleeps. And then when it's when he's needed, he can sense it and he just descends and then starts screaming at people and it things happen. It's you've seen that phenomenal. too. You've seen that you've seen the thing where like he's like he looks like he's zipping up his human suit from the back. Yes. Yeah. You're, I have been talking about this for months and you are the only person to acknowledge this. <laughs> I mean we didn't get to the alien conversation and the lizard people, but I'm pretty sure David is one of those. Yeah. One hundred percent. He's definitely a lizard person. Like that I have on good authority that David Zell, who is staring at me right now in this office, is a lizard person. Yeah, he knows what's up. Do you do you yeah. have anything you want to say? I plead the fifth and I'd like to speak to my lawyer. I fucking knew it. God damn it. You heard right. it here first. All right, my friends, we're going to call it a, a session. We've got an incredible episode for you next. FedWatch with Ansel and CK. Follow Matt on Twitter. If you have not already purchased your tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam, do so. Use code BMLive to save yourself 10%. Also, as I said before, the addition of the mag, the censorship resistant issue is phenomenal. Get one for yourself. You will not regret it. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your order today.